0: Today, I will be reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. Hear now the word of God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer forgiveness any offering for sin. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have told us in many ways now in your word that you are to be found in this promise, this covenant, this will and testament and declaration of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand the nature of what has happened in this one sacrifice for all time and what is occurring now in the reality of the reign of Jesus Christ. Help us to be not just subjects and citizens, but delightful participants in this reigning of the King, Jesus Christ. Help us to see this and know this this day and to live it by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You, have, you may have noticed in the title of today's sermon that we'll be talking about the nature of the reign of King Jesus. Now, it's um, easy to get to a place in our life when we hear things over and over again, that one, we can get them rooted deeply into our minds, but it also can become very rote. Um, I was just thinking about where Kevin and Abigail are today. They're at a church called Christ the King Church, and that the name of their church is called Christ the King. And I'm sure they put a lot of thought into the name and wanted to make sure it was very clear that Christ is the King. But when we hear something over and over again, we may think, well, let's go on to something else now. But no, we need to continue to go back and to be reminded over and over again that Jesus is king. And the question would be there for all of us, do you believe that Jesus is king? You may also can put side by side by this, and you may never have had these two questions put so quickly together. But even as the two hymns that we've sung so far also have done together as well, do you believe that you're forgiven? Now, we are Christians, and I would assume that most of you, knowing your stories, that you have been in the church for some time and that you believe that you are forgiven by Jesus Christ. And I think that it's very good to put these two questions together. Do you believe that Jesus is king, truly king in your life? And do you believe that you're forgiven because they are inseparable? Those two things have to be upon our mind that if we believe the answer to our question is yes, that we are forgiven. And we may quickly say, yes, I believe Jesus is king. But I'm like, stop. Let's think about that. Do you really believe that Jesus is king? What is the nature of the reign of Jesus Christ? We can think about earthly monarchies and we can think about what the nature of their kingdoms are. I know that when I hear Jennifer teaching the kids and often when I get involved and also talking about history, we will see that there are good kings and bad kings. Unfortunately, I find that often that if your name is King Charles, you're typically not such a good king, which is very sad because I like the name Charles, as you may Imagine, a lot of King Charles's did not have a very good nature to their kingdom. But what is the nature of the reign of Jesus Christ? How do we see his kingdom being manifested now? If we believe and we say yes, and we name our churches and we sing songs and we talk about how we have this king who is King Jesus, how how is that so? What is that? Is that something that's going to happen later that... He's just a king sitting in some room, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for his reign to commence? Or is he truly reigning now? Maybe you cannot answer the question of whether or not you're forgiven, but do you want to be forgiven? And do you want to be forgiven for your sins that you will likely commit, maybe even today or this week? But do you want your forgiveness to be truly effective In who you are, we like the idea of being forgiven, that we are let off the hook for some kind of error that we have committed or some kind of wickedness even that we may have committed. But do we think about how our forgiveness needs to become effective in who we are? Do you want your forgiveness to be transformative and to manifest itself in your life? Hopefully you can begin to see as we look in this passage, as we think about the nature of the reign of Jesus Christ. It has a lot to do not only with our forgiveness, but the effective nature of the transformative effect that it has on the life of his subjects. Currently, there are 43 sovereign states in the world with a monarch as a head of state. Did y'all know that? It's a lot of... It's a lot of countries or states, a lot of different places. You would think that, to the most part, that it's only a handful of places. You know, we recently saw the coronation of King Charles, and we think, well, this is kind of an antiquated idea. It's, It's past, it's not really so much. But actually, there are 43 sovereign states. Now, some of those fall under King Charles, and there's a multiple of them that do. There are 13 in Asia, there are 12 in Europe, there are nine in the Americas six in Oceania, and three in Africa. Most of those monarchs are by kings, but some are queens, co-princes, sultans, emirs, sovereign princes, a grand duke, and a young de Agong in Malaysia, an emperor, you may know where the emperor might be, Japan, a president, now, it's not talking about like the president we have here, but it's an actual, um, uh, the United Emirates, Emirates um, is a president, and there is a Pope, because that is considered, the Vatican is considered to be a monarch um, of some sort. Some of these are just figureheads, as you may know, that they really don't have any effective power in their particular state. But some have absolute authority over the government. So there's a wide expanse of what their power is like. Some of them they just maybe inherited over to the idea and they like the idea of a monarchy. And then some are kind of a hybridization of that. And then some truly are the absolute authority of the government in their particular state. There's usually some sort of constitution or some kind of covenant that is written and can be found amongst their place of government that defines the terms, the scopes, and the limitations of the monarchy and how that is interactive with other governing parts of the people. But again, I want to ask you the question, who is your true king? And what part of your life does that king rule? Now, try to not be so quick to just say, with Jesus and it's all of it, really think in your heart and be honest to yourself. I'm not asking you all to answer out loud to give me some kind of dissection. I would have to say that I would want to say that. I know that Jesus is king over all of my life. But then the question that you would need to ask yourself to maybe test that is, what power does that king have in your life? What controls you? What has power and authority over you Who do you answer to in your thoughts and in your actions and your words? I think if we were all honest with each other, that there are times often where it is not the power of Jesus or the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is having an effect on what is in our hearts or what is in our minds and what is upon our tongues or in our actions. Here, as we go continually on with the book of Hebrews and understanding the nature of the priest-king that we have in Jesus Christ, his priestly kingdom that we have, we are seeing more and more of how those two offices and roles that Jesus have are not only just merged, but are necessary and how it is effective for those things to be true. In Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 11, we are reminded that the old covenant priest that stood daily in their service, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, can never take away sins. And we, are being, we have been reminded of that over and over again. But think about what it's saying that they cannot do. They cannot take away sins, not just forgive sins, not just grant some type of hyper grace without any kind of effectiveness in the lives of people. sins, but a true grace of being able to take away sins. Verse 12 of Hebrews 10, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time, and let that three-word phrase, for all time, continue to echo as we go to the next few verses, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. Whereas the old covenant priest had to go daily to continue to do it over and over again because it was only a repetition of ceremony to point to the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplished that one-time sacrifice for all time. Meaning that it's covering both the old covenant ceremony, and everything that we are experiencing now and forevermore. And then when he offered himself as that one-time sacrifice, what does it say that he did? He sat down at the right hand of God. Immediately as he completes the ultimate priest function, and the ultimate sacrifice function of being the sacrifice himself, he sat down. Now I know in past sermons I've talked about the nature of that, but as a reminder that Jesus Christ, when he sits down, he's not just taking a break. He is entering into the rest of his work, but he is in authority. It is indicating to us that when he sat down, he sat down at the right hand of God, that that particular sacrifice work that he did established his eternal kingdom and reign. He's not waiting to be coronated as king. Now there's an interesting dichotomy to this that there is there is a completion. There's we are not just in a place where everything is done when it's done. <laughs> Everything's not complete when it's complete. We know that his work completed the work, but he's bringing about, as it says here in verse thirteen. That he is waiting from that time until all of his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Which means that it's being put under his authority. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now there's a lot going on there. But first of all we're being reminded that his enemies are being placed under his feet. But then we're reminded again, what seems to be a contrast in verse 14, that for by a single offering he has perfected, that means completed, for all time, all of us who are now active verb being sanctified. So it's both being sanctified, past tense, and active tense, being sanctified, which can seem very confusing. It's like, well, which one is it? Are we done or not done? You know, it's kind of like when we're cooking something, you know, when the timer goes off, the girls go, uh, I don't think the guys do this, maybe occasionally guys go into the kitchen and they check the oven, is it done or it's not done? And usually the answer is yes or no, but here we're thinking, well, what, are, are we done or not? Are we completed or not? Have we, are we sanctified or not? And then that's why it's important for us to understand that there is this part of us that our identity is completely sanctified. And the fact that Jesus represents us as he is in that holy of holies, as he is entered into through the curtain and is sitting at the right hand of the father. But that we are still being sanctified in our own lives, that that rain is being manifested, that something is going on. Something is occurring in the here and now, that he is waiting for everything, but everything is being put under his feet as he has dominion over everything, that his reign is effective, but it's also being fulfilled in its fullness. So it's already and not yet. So, this is the nature of that kingdom. And that we know that Jesus is taking away sins. It's not just that he is forgiving sins. He is taking away sins. That's why it's so important for us to think about what that means. That it's being eliminated. It's not just being overlooked. And that that his particular action is overarching. It's covering this all time. That means that when Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven... That for all time past and for all time to come, that means that he has sanctified, identifiably sanctified, those people who are not even yet born. So as you understand that it's this identity nature of all time and it's being manifested and completed right here and now in our lives. We see this magnified in Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That this says something that happened, just as in this passage it says that when Christ had offered, that means when means an, an actual time in history, that something occurred, that something occurred in time and space that was effective for things that were overarching over time and space. And that's kind of an amazing way to think about it, that something happened in history that covered history and future all at the same time. But it happened that when Jesus was here as a, and people witnessed him raised from the dead, people witnessed him being taken up into heaven, and it says that he has now sitted, sat down at the right hand of God. That means that actively, that is where he is at. But this kingdom has activity that is occurring now. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you look at verse 24 through 28, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority, in power, let the word power echo in your mind as you remember the question, what has power over you? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God, now here we go again with this, this dance that seems like a contrast. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, past tense, because of the work that has been accomplished, because of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, God has put all things, God the Father has put all things in subjection to under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. You just need to take that passage home and chew on that for a while. That's a, that's a big mouthful of words. But it's basically saying that here in this end time age that the the kingdom of God has been, del, is, is been subjected to Jesus, but there is a time where he will bring it to its fullness and deliver it to his father. So it's both accomplished and still yet to be accomplished. And I know that's difficult for us to understand. But it means that his rule is being manifested actively in the right here and right now. To give your brains a little bit of a, a break right now. I know this, it, it gets my brain really tired. I'm going to tell you a little joke. <laughs> I told, this joke, I um, heard this, and I, I think I've told this probably once or twice. And some of you may say, it's been more than once or twice. I'm, I'm sure you, my kids will probably have probably heard this. But I remember the pastor telling me this joke about these two guys named Jerry and Pete. And Jerry and Pete, they were, they were troublemakers. They were always getting into trouble. And their father would travel a lot. And when, when he came home, it, when they came home from being out after school, they would take their time getting home because they were out making trouble. And often when they saw that their father was home, they knew that they were going to encounter some kind of correction they'd always done something wrong and so they were just getting used to it when they come home Jerry and Pete would say well dad's home wonder what we're going to be in trouble for now but this time when they came home it was not only that their father was there the pastor was there and they were like oh what is up so they come in and the father had a, a little office off to the side there and the, the father and the pastor were in there, and they they usually, whenever there was a correction, Jerry and Pete would do these things together, and so they would both get this scolding and correction together, but this time they said, we're going to deal with you all one at a time. He said, Jerry, you come on in, Pete, you go sit in your room, we'll deal with you later. I'm not sure which one was what probably felt that there was more judgment upon them to have to wait or to be able to be the first one in there so Jerry sits down and sits him in a chair and um, the pastor gets up nobody said anything they have no idea Jerry's thinking what and he's thinking of things that they've done wrong but like wonder what it was that we got caught in and so Jerry's just sitting there and he's watching the pastor go back and forth and the pastor has this very stern he's a very stern man he's a very hard man and he's walking back and forth and He's looking at Jerry and Jerry's looking at him and then he stops and he says, where is God? And Jerry's like, he doesn't know how to answer that question. He goes back and forth for a little while longer and he stops and he says, where is God? It keeps going back and forth, and Jerry's like, I have no idea. I don't know what it was going on. And so finally, the pastor did it again. He hits it, and he screams out, where is God? And, and Jerry just stands up and bolts out of the room and goes running to his room. And Jerry goes in, and Pete's sitting there, and he's like, what's going on? He says, I don't know, but God is missing, and they think we have something to do with it. Now, it's a funny joke, but I thought the joke actually plays well in today's passage. It's like the question is, where is God? Where is Jesus? And what does it have to do with our infractions? What does it have to do with our sinfulness? Here, Jerry and Pete we're trying to figure out what is it that they've done wrong. And what, is it, what in the world does where God is have to do with it? Well, in this particular passage, where Jesus Christ is in his particular reign has everything to do with our sin. It has everything to do with whatever we've done wrong. All of the things that we have done wrong. Because Jesus has been raised from dying for our sins and he is now reigning over our hearts, cleansing us, removing, taking away our sins. His particular office and action as king has everything to do with what our lives are now and it should have everything to do with who has power over our hearts. But not just because he is forgiving us and not just because he is cleansing us of our sins, but the word of God says that we are going to participate with God in his reign. It is essential that his work be accomplished not just on the cross, but in his kingdom as he reigns because his children, his people, are going to reign with him. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 11 it says the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he also will deny us if we are faithless he remains faithful i love that little trick ending there you would think that well if we're faithless you know he'll be no he will be faithful for he cannot deny himself. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus must complete the fulfillment of completing the kingdom, not just to have a bunch of people who have been forgiven and their sins passed over, but to be a bunch of people who have had their sins taken away and who are now priests to God and are also reigning with Jesus. In the heavens, throughout the earth, and everywhere. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15 and 18 is quoting the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. And I think it's important for us to highlight, just as I did last week, as we saw the Psalm of David being now attributed to Jesus Christ's own words, saying that Jesus said this saying that it's ultimately Jesus's word. Here we have something that kind of takes it up to a different notch as well. It says that, I've lost my place. Let me go back to the right page. (laughs) It says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, saying that this is the Holy Spirit's word, which again is quoting Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord I will put my laws on their hearts I will write them on their minds and then he adds I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more Again, as we think about what Jesus did in his priestly role, now in his kingly role, what was effective in forgiving us of our sins is now going to be manifested and completed by having the work that he did actually having an effect in our hearts and our minds as his law, his kingdom law, will be put onto our hearts. Hearts that were once hard and dead in sin will now be made alive and will be renewed for the sake of the kingdom. If you go back and look at the Jeremiah passage, you see again that the Lord has taken liberty to change the words. Only the Lord can do these kind of things. We can't do this. But the words lawless deeds are not in there. But the sins are in there when it says where there is forgiveness of these. Excuse me. I will remember their sins. And their lawless deeds no more. He adds here, the writer of Hebrews adds, to sins, lawless deeds, wanting to continue that parallel, that our sins are lawlessness. And that the work of Jesus Christ as king is to bring us to lawful obedience to him. So the question is, is Jesus reigning in your hearts? As we consider this footstool, this footstool is a footstool of sanctification. It is ultimately why we are here. It is what defines everything that happens in the here and now, why we are here and why things are happening as they do, because this is the kingdom reign. Otherwise, we will be tempted to think that we're just all on hold, scrambling around like a bunch of mice trying to find our cheese. And then whenever someone takes our cheese, or you may read the book um, Having Your Cheese Moved or something like that. It's a leadership book. It's a sickle book. I had to read that in sales. And, but it was very insightful just talking about how we react when somebody moves our cheese. We get all upset and we start fighting and being all you know, selfish and bitter. That's not what life is about. That the things that are occurring for the Christian is that we're having our lives sanctified. That means the things that we encounter, both the good blessings that we think of and the difficult blessings. Again, it's all blessing. Because when we ran into challenges, God are using those things to take away our sins. And so we are to receive all things with thanksgiving, particularly our sufferings and our difficulties. Well, that's difficult because we kind of think well, that's something that's removed. That's from another kingdom. We kind of think, well, that's from Satan's kingdom. And he's, there's some kind of duality fight. Sometimes Satan's winning and sometimes Jesus is winning. No, we see in the declaration of God's word that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he is bringing about all things under his feet. And it's not just that we're just struggling with Satan. No, we are struggling with Satan. And he has been given in God's will to be allowed, but only as a purposes for drawing his people to himself so that he may take away their sins. So that means everything is moving in that direction. So when we think about how horrible the world is right now or how bad our government is, or even the suffering of individuals, that even suffering of innocent little children, which is beyond me in understanding God is doing something to bring about the fulfillment of drawing all of his people to himself, cleansing them of their sins, and preparing them for the reign of Jesus Christ, which means they are participating in the reign of Jesus Christ. And so here we see not only the scope of the reign, which is all things, but the nature of the reign. And it should be an encouragement to us as we face all things, as we think about our future plans whether it be vacation or taking on some new work project or looking for some kind of new work, that it's all falling under the reign of Jesus Christ. What will happen tomorrow or this week? How is it bringing about the reign? We can wonder that. Sometimes we get clear answers that we think are clear. And then other times we're left in complete confusion and even frustration that how can even this be a part of the reign? But tr- trust the Lord, take heart, that all these things are coming about. But not only is there the scope and the nature of the reign, but there's also the call of the reign, the call of the kingdom. We are not just to be participating in our life, this sanctification, we are to call others into the kingdom as well. If we think about it, there are three people that had this calling of the kingdom, which is ultimately the call of the gospel. Matthew chapter 3, which is really, he's only attaching himself to the whole Old Testament calling as well. But Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the call in the kingdom that as we call people to repentance, it is a part of the call of the kingdom. Remember, what is going on when Jesus made himself a sacrifice and is now reigning as king, it is to annihilate sin and death. And so therefore, as we call other people to the kingdom, we're calling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, when Jesus starts his ministry, he is using the same words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The call of the kingdom is to acknowledge that there is sin and to believe that Jesus Christ has died and has been the sacrifice for sin And by stating that it is the kingdom of God is at hand, it is the kingdom that is reigning. He has not only done this so that we may be forgiven, but that so sin may be annihilated from our lives. And then lastly, as we consider our calling, we're going into October, we'll be talking about what is the calling of the church We see in Acts 2, where John the Baptist begins the gospel by preparing the way of Christ, and then Jesus begins his ministry by saying the same words. We see Peter as the church is being established in Acts chapter 2. He is preaching about the kingdom of God. Starting with verse 34, it says, David did not extend into the heavens, but he himself says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. So when he declares the kingdom to these Old Testament Jews, it says that they were cut to the heart that something about the proclamation of the gospel and the movement of the Holy Spirit cut their heart and they respond to Peter and the rest of the apostles and they say, brothers, what shall we do? Then Peter just echoes John the Baptist and Jesus and says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is not only the proclamation of the gospel, but it is the initiation and the calling of the church. It is our calling that as we encounter each day, Both rest and work, we are being sanctified ourselves, but we are also at work as priests in this kingdom to proclaim the high priest in his sacrifice and reign. And it says, continuing in that passage, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Yeah, there's wicked things that are going on in this generation. There's judgments and there is death and there's difficulty in this generation. Be saved from this generation by repenting and being baptized and following Jesus Christ. And then continuing it says, And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, those souls who had come to the Lord, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. Into to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is where we are. This is the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is having our sins forgiven and taken away. Having the Lord reign in our hearts. Being called to proclaim and make other disciples of this kingdom. Coming together. Being devoted to his word and to the fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread, and of prayers. You're not just doing this because this is a fun way to start your Sunday. This is the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing us into your kingdom